following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world, so that the Lamb who was slain may receive the full reward for his sufferings. For more information about us, please visit gcclascruces.com. Please take your Bible and turn with me to the second chapter of the Apostle Peter's second letter. 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. This morning we come to the end of this chapter where the Apostle Peter concludes his description of the false teachers in his day who had already begun to infiltrate the church. As we saw last week in verse 13, Peter said that these individuals were blots and blemishes feasting with the church already. They were there present in the various churches in Asia Minor, reveling in their deceptions. So far, Peter has touched on their inevitable presence, saying that they're going to be with you. And we take that and we understand that False teachers will be present in the church all the way up until the Lord's return. They're going to be present, but thank God that he has not forsaken us. He's not left us abandoned. He has not left us alone. We know what they look like. We know how they sound. We know what they promise. We know how they live. And so we can detect them. And so God in his love has given us second Peter so as to be able to identify these false teachers. And Peter, for the most part, has been focusing on their character their deceptive nature. As we come to the text today, he's going to give us insight into their message and what they preach. And so he has also exposed their insidious agenda. They have come to secretly introduce destructive, damning heresies, false teachings, teachings to get people wrapped around the axle, right? To major in minors and to minor in majors. They, 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 they love doing that. As we saw last week, they are doomed to destruction. He has exposed their sensuality. He has exposed their motive, their greed. He has exposed their boldness. They are not quiet people. They are arrogant, he says. And scattered throughout this entire chapter are Peter's bold declarations that nothing but eternal punishment awaits these individuals. That's what awaits them. In verse 1, it says that they'll bring upon themselves swift destruction. In verse 2, it says that their condemnation is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. Verse 3 says that the Lord knows how to keep these unrighteous individuals under punishment until the day of judgment. Sorry, that's later in in, in the chapter. It says that they'll be caught and destroyed and they'll be destroyed in their destruction. It says that they'll suffer harm for the harm they've caused by their respective ministries. In the middle of the chapter, he calls them accursed children. They're cursed. And as we come this morning to verses 17 through 22, 
Peter says that the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved for them. And as we're going to see this morning in these final six verses of chapter two, the warnings that are found in these verses, although they're applied directly to false teachers, they are warnings that every one of us ought to take to heart. They are warnings that we need to take to heart because although God blesses his people with the gift of assurance, the sweet gift of assurance, his word also teaches us with equal force and equal potency that many who start the Christian journey and even appear to start it well do not make it to the end. They don't make it to the finish line. And Jesus taught us that only those who endure to the end will be saved. So you understand the tension. God does promise assurance. He gives us his glorious Holy Spirit so as to remind us, to assure us that we are the children of God, as Romans chapter 8 says. But we are also given numerous warnings that we need to persevere to the end. We need to lay hold of the faith once for all delivered to the saints. We need to, as we read in Hebrews chapter 2 a while ago, pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. We need to pay much closer attention to what we have heard. The fact of the matter is that you and I have not crossed the finish line yet. And what lies between us and that finish line are many dangers, many more temptations, many more trials, and many more snares. And thank God that he doesn't show us what lies ahead because we would probably give in to discouragement as we saw everything that lies ahead. But we live by faith. We live by trust in Christ every day, looking to his word as a lamp to our feet and a light to our path today because sufficient for the day is its own troubles. This is one of the reasons Hebrews 10, 36 says that we have need of endurance so that when we have done the will of God, we may receive what is promised. So may we not be of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. And so with that, I invite you to hear and heed the words of the living God. Second Peter chapter 2, verses 17 through 22. The apostle writes, These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow 
in the mire. Grace Community Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So Peter shifts, as it were, from the character of these false teachers to the effect that these individuals had on others and continue to have on others. And although we have six verses that serve as the conclusion of this chapter, Peter is essentially calling our attention to two particulars regarding false teachers. Their empty message in verses 17 through 19 and their unchanged nature, verses 20 through 22. Their empty message and their unchanged natures. And so as we give thought, first of all, to their empty message in verses 17 through 19, I want you to notice that Peter gives us, at the outset, two illustrations that accentuate and underscore the emptiness of their message. Look at verse 17, the first sentence there. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. Take yourself back 2,000 years to the Middle East. No cell phones, no AC in your car, no car. Perhaps a camel, donkey, other animals bearing burden. You can imagine the intense fatigue the Middle Eastern sun would bring upon weary travelers in that day, and how refreshing the sight of a water spring off in the distance would be. It would be hope-giving. It would be encouraging. And then imagine rushing to that spring with your camels and with your traveling companions, only to find that that spring was completely dry. It's a waterless spring. From a distance, it had the appearance of being a place of refreshment, a place of nourishment. But the sad reality was that up close, it was as dry as the mouths of those suffering from thirst. What looked hopeful offered no hope. And what appeared to be promising offered no refreshment, no relief whatsoever. And then Peter throws out a second illustration. He says these individuals are mists driven by a storm. Not only are they waterless springs, they are mists driven by a storm. You can also imagine how a hopeful farmer in that day, you can imagine how hopeful he would be at the sight of clouds gathering around his farm as he can begin to feel the humidity levels rising and possibly begin to feel the mist of what appeared to be the beginning of a thunderstorm, suddenly the wind picks up, a storm picks up and blows the clouds and all the moisture away, leaving the farmer's hopes dashed to pieces. Again, there was every indication that his crops were about to be watered, but it all came to nothing. And as was the case with the first illustration. What looked hopeful offered no hope. And what appeared to be promising offered no relief and no refreshment whatsoever. Peter throws out these two illustrations and he likens false teachers to both of them. 
You see, false teachers have every indication that they have something substantial, something weighty to offer their hearers. But in the end, they leave them empty and hollow. No doubt they, their hearers keep coming back because they're in, under a false delusion that they're going to eventually get something. But they come again week after week and they devour their books. And yet all along they are hollow and they're not satisfied. They're not uplifted. They're not encouraged. They're not built up in a biblical sense. They're empty and hollow. You see, Proverbs chapter 10, verse 11 says that the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. That is, when the godly man, the godly woman, whose mouth and heart are filled with God's word, when they speak, it's like a fountain of life to their hearers because they speak the words of life, the words of God. But there's nothing righteous about these false teachers, and so he or she has nothing to offer. They are a waterless spring. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 14 says that the teaching of the wise is a fountain of life. But there's no wisdom in a false teacher, and so they leave their hearers dry. Proverbs 14, 27 says that the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. But since false teachers have no fear of God, they have nothing to offer their hearers. They promise satisfaction and refreshment to thirsty souls but in the end they leave them parched and needy as ever and what's sad is that when people want nothing to do with god they're content to try again and again to find water in these waterless springs and these broken cisterns and yet they never find what they're looking for but they keep looking and this was the case of the people in Jeremiah's day. You remember God's indictment of them in Jeremiah 2.13. He says, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. You can see the people there forsaking God and turning away to build cisterns. They could hold no water. You see, in the Bible, sound teaching, divine teaching, biblical teaching, sound doctrine, it's all likened to nourishing rain and refreshment that brings about life. In Deuteronomy 32, verse 2, Moses said, speaking on God's behalf, may my teaching drop as the rain. May my speech be like the dew like gentle rain upon the tender grass and like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. So you see, when you proclaim the name of Yahweh, when you just proclaim the name of God, when you preach the truth, it's refreshment, it's water to those who hear. Likewise, Job, recounting the days prior to his calamity, said, men listened to me and waited and kept silence from my counsel. After I, spoke, they, I didn't, after I spoke, they did not speak again, and my word dropped upon them. They waited for me as for the rain, and they opened their mouths as for the spring rain. So Job likened his speech before the days of calamity when he would speak the truth to be like rain to the people. 
And of course, you remember how God speaks of his word in Isaiah 55. He says, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word that goes, so shall my word be that goes forth out of my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So divine teaching, truthful teaching, biblical teaching, God-centered, Christ-exalting teaching is like refreshing water and rain to those who hear. And so by definition, false teaching cannot provide any genuine refreshment that leads to life or nourishment in any way. It might heighten the emotions for a little while. It might grip the attention for a little while but it offers no lasting permanent substance to change you or sanctify you or lead you to God. On the contrary, it produces death. If the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, then false teaching must be a cistern of death. It hardens the heart. It blinds the eyes. It hardens and it sears the consciences of people. It puts people into a spiritual slumber. It has no power to help people to overcome sin or to delight in the ways of God as the all-satisfying fountain of living waters. This is why Peter immediately follows in verse 17. He follows these two illustrations with a description of the doom of false teachers. Notice the end of verse 17. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. You see, God takes it very seriously. False teaching, one, But then two, intentionally deceiving others, intentionally keeping others from the refreshing reign of his word and of his truth. God takes that very seriously as the God of truth. And so for these individuals, the gloom of blackest darkness is reserved. They're destined for that. Now, this is a chilling description of hell that we find in the text here. It describes hell as blackest darkness. It's so dark that you can feel it is the idea here. Some of us have experienced this kind of darkness. Really, you can't even experience it out at night because you at least have the, the, the light of the stars on a black night with no moon. That's not black darkness. Imagine being in a room with no light underneath the door, no nightlight, no light of the phone. Eventually, the darkness settles in and you can feel how thick that darkness is. That's That's what he's describing here. That's hell, thick, black, darkness, but you're consciously aware of everything, of your sin, of the past, missed opportunities. Memory is there, as we find in Luke chapter 16, when the rich man dies and goes into this place of conscious torment. It's black darkness. Jesus uses the same word, by the way, on several occasions to describe hell. In Matthew 8, 12, he says, the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He also says in Matthew twenty two thirteen, then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness. And then he transitions out of the parable and into the reality. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So what makes this more terrifying is that hell is also referred to Jesus as a fiery furnace. 
And it seems to be a contradiction in our minds. How can this place of unquenchable fire also be a place of thick, black, gloomy darkness? Well, I can tell you that you don't want to go and find out. But it is the reality. It says in Matthew 13, verse 50, throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so when you put the picture together, when you put all the data together, it's a place of unquenchable fire. And yet it's a place of thick black darkness where the souls of unrepentant sinners, self-loving sinners, God-hating individuals will weep and gnash their teeth forever and ever. And now Peter goes on to describe in more detail the emptiness of their message. Notice verse 18. For, now he's giving the reason why they're going to be condemned. For, speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. Their arsenal consists of essentially two weapons, loud boasts of folly and enticement by the sensual passions of the flesh. Number one, loud boasts of folly. The Greek speaks of something that's that's excessive in, in weight or size. It speaks of something that is swollen past its normal, natural size. We saw earlier that they have no reverence for great things. And so they boast, they are arrogant, they're bold, they're confident, overly confident in themselves and in their message. And yet Peter says in the end, it's all folly. The word folly in your ESV means futility. It means vanity. It means emptiness. They're speaking loud boasts of emptiness. Now, it's not empty to the hearers, but it's empty in its end result. When, when their hearers are hearing these things, they're not thinking this is a bunch of vanity. They're thinking this is, this is the best of the best. This is wonderful. This is glorious. And Peter says that in the end, it's all vanity. It's like grasping for the wind. How do you grasp for the wind? You can't. You can grasp and you can wear yourself out grasping, But in the end, you open your hand and you have nothing. It's all vanity. It's loud boasts. It's a big show. The idea is something that's that's overdone. And it's interesting because if you... This is one of the glorious things about God's word is that it's timeless and it's ever relevant. When you think of those false teachers today on television, they're not the humble, let's get into the Bible type guys. They're rushing about back and forth, running around on the stage, making loud commotion. They're making loud claims about themselves, loud boasts, glorying in themselves. Oftentimes, it's these individuals that tell the greatest stories about what God has done for them and in them and through them. And it, it, it just entices their hearers and it, it captivates their audience. Did you hear what the, the, what the pastor said today? He's done this. He went to this mission field and he did this and all these healings came through him. It's loud boasts of folly. It's a big show, but in the end, it's like, it, it, leaves, it leaves everybody empty. 
It's like a quick, big fireworks show, but in the end, it's just fog and smoke in the sky. It's nothing, nothing lasting. Peter says, this is what they do. They speak loud boasts of folly. It's sad that unstable people are attracted to these things because of its volume. You see, when people are new believers, they, are ten, they tend to be drawn towards people who, who speak with such authority, such confidence, so as to convey that they know their stuff. They could never be wrong. And when people speak with authority, it tends to captivate the crowd. It tends to capture the minds of people. But what I encourage you to do is, instead of being captivated by the volume and the showiness of what you're hearing... Always ask yourself, is this Bible? Is this the truth? Is this the result of faithful exposition, explanation, observation of God's word? Is this faithful application of God's word? Oftentimes it's not. It's just a big show. Peter says they speak loud boasts of folly. There's no substance, no power. And notice their second weapon in their arsenal. It's not, it's not just being loud, boastful. He says they entice. It's the same word he used earlier in the chapter. Speaks of enticing an animal with bait or a net, some kind of an allurement. They entice, notice how, by sensual passions of the flesh. This seems to be a recurring theme in Second Peter. And it's almost always identical with sexual sin and sexual pleasure, ungodly sexual pleasure and sensual passion. Now, we know how this is working. This is not up front. Hey, come and be sensual in our in our congregation. Come and be sexually immoral. That's not how it goes. It's it's typically, as we saw in chapter three, it's the result of being taught over and over again that there's no judgment in the end. There's grace and grace and grace and mercy and love and love and love. You see, they were denying the reality of the second coming. And in denying the reality of the second coming, they were denying the reality of the coming judgment, which follows the second coming. And so when you hear that over and over again, it eventually plays out in your mind that if there's no judgment, then as Paul says, we eat and drink and be merry. There's there's no consequences to our actions. He says that's how they entice. And notice who they entice by these passions of the flesh. Those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. The idea in the Greek behind the word barely is that they they are just escaping. And it's it's actually in the present tense. They're on their way of escaping. So this is a, a new convert. Someone who's heard the message of Christianity, they're they're, they're learning to read God's word, learning to pray, learning to to walk the walk. That's the idea here. Those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. What What a horrible thing is that they target new believers. They target believers who are so new that they are yet, they're still ungrounded and, and, and not firmly rooted in the truth. In fact, the the Greek is saying they're in the process of escaping. And as soon as they're there, escaping, 
the enemy is there with his loud boasts of folly and enticing by the passions of the flesh those who are barely coming out of the world. It's devious how the devil works through his ministers of unrighteousness. These are new converts. They're unstable, which leaves a challenge for us that as we make disciples and as people begin to believe and repent, we don't just say, while they're in the ark, God sealed them in, thank God. Let's go on to the next one. Friends, they are so vulnerable in that, in that state. They're new. They, they, they don't know the Bible the way you know it. They don't know that Genesis is before Revelation, many of them. They don't know that Revelation is the end of the book. They, they don't know these things. The Great Commission consists of evangelism, yes, but also deliberate, intentional discipleship of bringing those who are coming to Christ to be rooted in the scriptures. And this is not just the work of the pastor or the elders. If you read the structure and, and, and how Ephesians chapter 4 works, pastors are given to congregations to equip them for the work of ministry. We often think, oh, I'm not, I'm not trained. I don't have the theological training I don't have what I need in order to pour into this individual. Yet true, but God's given you that responsibility to do the work of ministry. You are a minister. It's just how well of a minister are you? How well of a steward are you in stewarding this gift of ministry that God's given to you? You may not have the training, but there's a, I can guarantee you there are a of the writing of books, there's no end, right? There are a lot of helpful books in helping people to, to ground, to become grounded in the, in the truths of the Christian faith. You don't need to teach, just facilitate a good book. Ask questions. Mo many of the books today have study questions at the end of each chapter. Walk them through it. As you meet individuals, say, hey, let's read the book of Romans together. Let's read the book of John together. Then let's go on to Acts and let's talk about Ephesians. And I want to make sure you're understanding it, not just the verses that, that stand out to you, but what is the overall message of Ephesians saying to us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you understanding it? Do you have questions? Do you have concerns? Where are you struggling? Why? Because as new converts that are not yet grounded in the faith. They are so vulnerable. All it takes is someone over here on the radio, on the television, loud, boasting, and, 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 and in his folly, promising things, as we're going to see in the next few verses, promising things that they can't deliver. That's all it takes for someone to be swept back into the realm of deception. And God forbid that that happen through us who know the truth and love the truth and can communicate the truth or at least point people to the truth. And so I challenge you, are there those in your life that are in this vulnerable position? Reach out. Establish some form of study, some form of fellowship to see to it that they're grounded, they're anchored Again, this is every member ministry here that we're talking about. My job is just to equip you to go out and do that. Now notice verse 19. We're still talking about the emptiness of their message. 
Verse 19 says, they promised them freedom. And now here we come to Peter's first reference in the entire chapter to something of the content of their message. We've seen their character. Now we're actually seeing what they are preaching. It's the word freedom. Freedom. Now we know, based on the rest of this chapter, that they are not promising freedom from sin or its influences. They're not promising freedom to serve God. That would be to contradict everything we have read in this chapter. And so we have to ask, what is the nature of the freedom that they are promising? Well, as you put together the entire puzzle here in 2 Peter chapter 2, it's freedom not to serve God, but freedom to live for yourself without consequences. It's freedom not from sin, but it's freedom to sin. How do we know that? Because again, if in chapter 3 we read of these individuals who are, are, who, are, who, are, who are mocking the coming judgment and denying the future judgment, then it must mean that the freedom they're promising is a freedom to, to live however you want because there's not going to be any consequences in the end. Now, I also don't think that this is necessarily up front. Hey, come follow us and we'll allow you to live free, to live however you want. Again, this is, as we saw early on in chapter 2, secret heresy. It's, it's, they're secretly introducing these things. So it's not up front. They, they, don't come to you, they don't come to you and say, hi, I'm a false teacher. Let me, let me show you some heresy. Hi, I'm a false deceiver. Let me teach you some doctrines of demons. You want to dabble in that? Let's dabble in it. That's not how it, it never works that way. Again, it's loud, confident teaching about things that they, as Peter says, are really ignorant of earlier on in the chapter. They come and they're assertive and they're confident and they're bold. In chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, Peter writes concerning the Apostle Paul that he has things in his letters that are hard to understand. But then he says that unstable people twist Paul's words to their own destruction. It's not a for sure thing. I happen to be of the opinion, this is my opinion, that what Peter is alluding to in those who are twisting and perverting Paul's teaching they're perverting his teaching when it comes to freedom. In other words, Paul, in Galatians 5, says, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. How would you pervert that? You would pervert that by saying, For freedom, Christ has set us free. And you end right there. Or, for example, Galatians 5.13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Paul says, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. How would you pervert that? How would an unstable, unsteady person pervert that? As chapter 3, verse 15 and 16 says, well, you would say, for you were called to freedom. God wants you to live your best life now. He wants you to get all you can now. He wants you to enjoy this world. He wants you to enjoy everything the world has to offer. He created your passions. He wants you to fulfill those passions. Is God not sovereign? Is God not the God of your emotions? 
Live according to your emotions. That's how you pervert the truth. So this, this is a possible perversion of Paul's teaching on freedom. They promised them freedom, it says. But notice the irony. Go back to the passage. They promised them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. That's the irony, right? They promised them freedom, and more than likely it's a freedom to sin and to live however you want. But in the end, he says, they're slaves themselves of corruption. And the word corruption can talk about, can speak of moral corruption, but it's also used elsewhere in, the, in, in this chapter to describe the destruction that comes with the final judgment, right? Not just the corrupting pleasures of sin, but also the corruption that that, that leads to in the end being destroyed in judgment. They themselves are slaves of corruption. And notice what he says at the end of verse 19. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. This is what Paul said, right? Whatever you serve, that's your master. Jesus said in John 8, 34, whoever commits sin, ongoing committing of sin is a slave of sin. The Bible teaches with very, very bold clarity that everyone is a servant of something. Everyone is overcome with something. And in the end, there's two options. You are either overcome with the glories of God in the face of Christ. You're either overcome in the redemptive accomplishments of the Son of God who loved us and gave himself up for us. And you're, over, you're either overcome by his love, you're overcome by his grace, you're overcome to the point of joining in the worship of heaven, the worship of angels around his throne. You're either overcome by the goodness of the word of God, the powers of the age to come, the goodness of God and the glory of God. You're either overcome by that or there's only one other option. You're overcome by your own lust and your own sin again and again and again. And Paul is make, Peter makes it very clear. Whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. And so you have to ask as... Romans chapter 6 forces us to ask, are you a slave of God or are you a slave of sin? Are you a servant of God or are you a servant of sin? Now you might, again, this has nothing to do with your profession, by the way. Nothing to do with your claim because there are many who claim to be servants of God, but their lifestyles show that they are still enslaved to their corrupt sinful nature. Their claim doesn't match reality. They profess to know God, as Titus 1.16 says, but they deny him by their works. It's those who, said, who say, like Jesus says, you call me Lord, Lord, but you do not do what I tell you to do. How can you call me master when you don't do what I call you to do? Whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. And notice, as we move on to verses 20 through 22, we've considered their empty message, and now let's consider their unchanged nature. Their unchanged nature. For if, and he's still expounding on the last reality of being overcome, 
For if, after they have escaped... Now, who's the they? Many say, well, this is the false teachers. Others say, well, these are the followers of the false teachers. But really, in the end, we can put them both into one count because they're all essentially believing the same thing. For after they have escaped the defilements of the world... Through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. So he's expounding on the reality of being overcome by sin. And he explains that a little bit more here. But first, we have to understand something in this text because it creates a possible dilemma in our minds. The, uh, it creates a question in our minds. Were these individuals truly Christians at some point? And did they fall away from Christ? Were they in the hand of Christ? And then were they plucked out of the hand of Christ? Were they at one point in the hand of Almighty God, the Father? And were they plucked out or did they fall out? As one of them I've heard many times Sure, nothing can pluck you out of, your, out of the Father's hand, but you can jump out of the Father's hand. It's folly. But notice the first description of these individuals. They have, number one, escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of Christ. Now, I want you to see something. Go, go back to chapter 1 and verse 4. Chapter 1, verse 4. You remember there that Peter tells us, beginning in verse 3, that Christ's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence, by which, verse 4, he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. And listen having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So in chapter 1, verse 4, Peter describes the Christian, the regenerate man, the regenerate woman, as someone who has escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful lust. But then as we turn to chapter 3, where we're at, or sorry, chapter 2, where we're at today, and we look at verse 20, he describes these false teachers and false converts as having escaped the defilements of the world. And how did they escape? Notice the means of their escape. Through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Everywhere else, this word knowledge is used, is used to describe the Christian's knowledge, Right? We have all things that pertain to life and godliness. We have been given that through the knowledge of the one who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So is this describing, one, a Christian who at one point was sealed with the Holy Spirit, granted eternal life, and then falls away from the grace of God, falls out of the hands of God? Or is there another category that we should be thinking about here? Because... It's important that we get this right because the Bible, on the other hand, teaches very clearly in the eternal security 
of the child of God, the eternal security of the believer. And for that, we turn to, for example, John chapter 6, verses 39 through 44, where, 37 through 44, where Jesus tells us that it's the will of the Father that he loses nothing of all that he has given him, but that he raise it up on the last day. Jesus will lose none of his people. He'll actually see to it that all of his people are gloriously raised up in glorification on the last day. And then we move on into chapter 10 of the Gospel of John, and we see that Jesus says, I give them eternal life. Speaking of his sheep, I give them eternal life. And no one can snatch them out of my hand. The Father who is greater than I has given them to me. And he says, no one can snatch them out of his hand. So we're in the hand of the Father and in the hand of the Son. Eternal life is in us. And Jesus promises that he will lose none of his people, not one. And this is the God who does not lie. Same God who does not lie. So what do we do with these passages? Well, as we look at verse 20, I believe what we have on our hands here is someone who came so close and yet was still so far. They had escaped, but we have to conclude, as we see here, is a temporary escape because they escaped, but then they returned. That's not a permanent escape. Salvation, by its very definition, is a deliverance. And when we see the word deliverance in the Bible, we see that the children of Israel were permanently delivered out of Egypt. There wasn't this temporary deliverance, and then they ended up like a magnet, you know, drawn back to Egypt. No, God, when he delivers a people, it's a permanent, lasting, effectual deliverance, an effectual salvation. You're out of darkness and now you're in light. You're out of the domain of darkness and now you're in the kingdom of his beloved son. It's a thorough, full deliverance, a full, free salvation. But this is something different. They escaped for a little while. The defilements of the world. How? Through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But let me ask you, Is it merely knowledge that makes a Christian? Is it merely knowing that makes you a Christian? No, friends. There's many who know the truth but hate the truth. There's many who understand the message but yet do not yield to the message. They know it in the head but have not cherished it in the heart. And that is not saving faith. That is not saving knowledge. I think what we have here if we're faithful to the rest of the Bible, we have surface knowledge and not saving knowledge. We have surface knowledge as we see in the parable of the sower. In each of those scenarios, which we're going to see in the end here, the message goes out. In the last three scenarios, these individuals hear it and understand it and actually rejoice in the message. And yet as you read, The roots didn't go down very, very deep in some of these scenarios. And so it was a surface reception, a surface knowledge. You didn't go past the rocks. There was never any firm rooting. And so they fell away when the storm and and the wind and the sun scorched it. So these individuals escaped temporarily the defilements of the world. In other words, they didn't look like 
the worst of the worst. But again, just because you don't look like the worst of the worst is no sure ground for security. A lot of people say, well, I, 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 I don't do the things that these individuals do. Great, but do you cherish the word of Christ? Do you cherish the glory of Christ? Does your soul rejoice in hope of the glory of God? You may have, def- you may have escaped, and you may not look like those who are defiling themselves in the world, but you could be the most civilized on the outside, cleaned up person there is, and yet still be inwardly dark and depraved and God-hating. They escaped temporarily because there was a knowledge. They, they came to understand something of the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and as Savior. And notice the next half of verse 20. And they are again entangled in them and overcome. Entangled in what? The defilements that he just mentioned. They're entangled, and not just entangled, but overcome. And the word, as we noted a few nights ago in one of our discussions, is in the present tense. They are continually overcome, continually overpowered by these defilements. And that's what happens. Is that the description of a Christian? If you read the book of First John, that's certainly not the description of a Christian. You see, John uses the word overcome as well. But he talks about those who by faith overcome the evil one and overcome the world. And this is the victory that's overcome the world. Our faith. Our faith. So these individuals, they escape temporarily through some form of knowledge. It was a surface knowledge. And yet they are again entangled in them and continuously overcome and notice the very end of verse 20, the la- if that happens, he says, the last state has become worse for them than the first. Why? Because at that point, the heart is harder. The eyes are blind. The conscience is more seared than ever. You see, those are the hardest people to reach. Those who believe they have come to Christ and yet what they've come to is an understanding of being moral and going to church. These are the hardest people to reach as those who think they are saved, but they're not. And you know they're not because they're continuously overcome by the defilements of the world, entangled in them and overcome by them. And the last state for them has become worse for them than the first. Their hearts are in a worse position. Their consciences are in a worse position. And obviously their eternal destiny is worse for them than when they were lost. Now, it begs the question, is it going to be worse for those in hell who once professed to know Christ and came to the knowledge of the gospel and yet turned away from it? Obviously so. Remember, Jesus talked about it's going to be more bearable, more tolerable in the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than for these who are hearing his word and seeing his works. Why? Because even though Sodom and Gomorrah were deserving and rightfully deserving of the wrath poured down upon them on that day, yet they never heard about the Lord Jesus Christ. They were still guilty, still equally condemned for their sin. But he says, compared to those who are hearing the Son of God and seeing his works and understanding something of his glory as the Son of God, 
He says it's going to be worse for those who see that, understand that, and then turn from that. And this has huge implications for those in every local church. Because every local church, no doubt, is filled with at least one or two or in bigger churches than ours. We're, we're a relatively small church. There are t- tons of people who have understood these things, and yet they're on their way to eventually be entangled and overcome by them. Why? Because they have no root in themselves, and they're going to eventually, their nature is eventually going to come out, as we're going to see at the end of the chapter. The last state has become worse for them than the first Verse 21, for, still explaining this last reality, it would have been better for them never, never to have known the way of righteousness, which is the, another way of describing the Christian life, the way of truth, the way of righteousness, the way of Christ, the way of life, the way of righteousness, then after knowing it, to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. So, at one point, these individuals knew the way of righteousness. They knew and heard teaching that there is a wide path and a narrow path, and that the narrow path leads to life, and that the wide path leads to destruction. And yet, they, after knowing it, they turned back. They turned back. We think of Demas, one of Paul's co-laborers. In one of his letters, Demas is laboring with them. In another letter, he says, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. This guy labored with Paul, heard Paul's preaching. Was there any, other than the Lord Jesus Christ, was there any other greater preacher than Paul the apostle? And yet he labored with this man. And yet, you know what Paul said in the end? It wasn't that Demas heard this strong scholarly argument It just says that Demas fell in love with this present world and deserted Paul. No wonder John devotes so much time in simple language to talk about those who love the world and those who love the Father. Those who love the world and those who love the Father. John says, do not love the world or the things in the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life are not of the Father but are from the world. It would have been better for them never to have known, never to be familiar, never to be acquainted with the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back. There's, there's the deliberate turning back of these individuals. To turn back from what? The holy commandment delivered to them. Now, I believe this word, holy commandment, this, this phrase and is used to describe just the whole body of Christian truth as contained in the scriptures the holy commandment to look upon the Lord Jesus Christ and receive forgiveness of sins. This is the holy commandment. This is, as Jude, Jude says, the faith that's once for all been delivered to the saints. It would have been better. Have you ever considered the it would have been better statements in the New Testament? Jesus said it would be better for, never, it, it would have been better for this man never to have been born, the one who delivered him over to Pilate. This goes to show that it is possible, friends, to come to some form of knowledge of Jesus Christ and to escape 
the defilements of the world and to look like a Christian for a season, to act like a Christian for a season, to perhaps read the Bible for a season like a Christian, and then to turn back to find yourself, one, entangled in those defilements again, and not just entangled, and as Psalm twenty-five, fifteen says, you, Lord, have plucked my feet out of the net. That's the Christian. The reality is the Christian does sometimes get entangled in the nets of this world. But God plucks his feet out. He has the word and the sword of the Spirit to cut that net and to get back out on that path. But these individuals, they are entangled and then continuously from that point overcome, overruled, overthrown by what masters them now, which is what? Sin and defilement and corruption. This is a terrifying reality. You see, we have not crossed the finish line yet. You have not crossed the finish line yet. And it's those who endure to the end who will be saved. You don't want to be like these individuals who endure for a little while and yet fall back, shrink back, like Hebrews 10 talks about. It's a horrible word, shrink back. Horrible phrase. It implies that there never was a, a, a disconnect from what you, you know, departed. You departed from a little while, but then you shrank back into it. There wasn't a clear break. There wasn't a clear separation. There wasn't a clear, thorough repentance toward God, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But there was enough, there was enough distance that you created from your sin for a, t- for a little while. But then you shrank back like a spring. And now notice how he ends with another illustration. So he begins with two illustrations and he ends with two proverbs. Verse 22, what the true proverb says has happened to them. One of them is a quotation from Proverbs 26, verse 11. The other was just a general proverb of the day. Number one, the dog returns to its own vomit. And the sow, the pig, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire or in the muck or in the mud. Peter uses these two animals because, obviously, in his mind, as a Jew, grew up Jewish, the pig was an unclean animal. Likewise was the dog. The dog was not your typical sparky, like, family pet. Dogs in that day were ferocious, fierce. They were not used as household pets. They were, they, they were scavengers. They were, you get a description of how Nasty these dogs were in Luke 16 as Jesus describes this rich man and Lazarus. And Lazarus was there at the rich man's gate, you know, broken open with sores and pus all over his body. And the dogs were there to lick up this, just, just nasty animals. That, that's, the, that's the idea. How nasty? Well, as all dogs do, most dogs do. They vomit and then they return to it. Now, I'm so thankful for God's word and that it calls sin for what it really is. And we need preachers today to call sin for what it really is. You see, sin is not just brokenness. And often you hear that in gospel presentations today. Oh, we live in a broken world and you're broken too. No, friends, you're covered in your own vomit and you return to your vomit. The Bible portrays sin as vomit. What's worse than vomit? 
in our, in our, God uses language in order to describe the accuracy and the filth and the true nature of rebellion against him. The true nature of sin is likened to vomit. And these individuals, they're like dogs that return to their vomit, their sin. And the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow, roll in the mire. You can imagine a pig being washed. And yet, as, as you know, Proverbs talks about the, you know, a, a nice earring being put in the snout of a pig, and yet it's still a pig, right? It's, it's, there's nothing that beautifies the pig. Nothing. And yet what the pig does eventually is that it turns, returns back to the, 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 the mire, Right? We, go, we go to the fair, and we see here, Southern New Mexico State Fair, and, and we see these pigs, and these 4-H kids are washing their pigs, and they look, they look I mean, I don't know if they even look beautiful, but they look nice for a little, little while, but what, you know, after the showing, and after they walk their pig back and forth, and the pig gets a nice first place, second place reward, what happens? They go back to their pens, and they're wallowing in the mud again, and, and then we, you know... You know, we take our families in the strollers and we go and see, oh, these are beautiful. No, they're not really beautiful animals, you know. Why? Because it's in their nature to roll in the mud and to be filthy. That's just what they are. Glory is for bacon, but they're just not good at beautiful animals. Their nature is to be in the mud. That's because the nature doesn't change. People will always revert back to what they are in their very nature. And that's why I highlighted the second point as their unchanged natures. Why did they turn back from the Holy Commandment? Why did they begin to get, why did they entangle themselves again and find themselves overcome again and again and again, all the way up until their destruction? Why? Because the inward man never changed. There was outward reformation, but there was no inward regeneration. They, they were outwardly reformed. They changed themselves. They turned a new leaf. They, they, they bought a Bible at Barnes & Noble. They, 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 they bought some highlighters. They, they, they started to look like Christians. They, they found a good church where there was fellowship and they felt a sense of identity and, and belonging. But they weren't there to worship Christ. They weren't there to bask in the glory of his redemptive accomplishments at the cross. They were there because church was good for them. And eventually... As a dog returns to its vomit and as a sow returns to its mire, these individuals, then in Peter's day and many in our day, their, worse, their, their last state will become worse for them than the first. They shrank back and were destroyed. We need to understand sin for what it is, friends. The devil comes to us and paints sin in such a beautiful light. And God, in his love, says, no, your sin is vomit. It's vomit. It's mire. The thing about the mire is that it's not just mud. And what was in that, what was in that mire was everything. It was the food that the pig didn't eat. It was the, 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 the pig's excrement. It was everything. And that pig wallows in it. That's what sin is. And if you, as a Christian a professing Christian, are returning to your vomit again and again. If you were a Christian wallowing in the mire, consider your ways. Consider your profession. Consider the Lord Jesus Christ. And be warned that if you continue in that mire, 
your last state will be worse for you than your first. Now, I want you to turn to three passages as we conclude here. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6. Quickly, Hebrews chapter 6. We have these intense warning passages in the Bible that are there for our good. And notice what Hebrews chapter 6 verse 4 says. For it is impossible, not just difficult, not just hard, but impossible. The same word is used to describe the blood of bulls and goats being impossible. uh, It not being possible for them to take away sins. In the case of those who have once been enlightened, here's the word that has to do with knowledge. And this is exactly what Peter was talking about. These individuals escaped temporarily by a knowledge, by enlightenment. But again, mere enlightenment does not save you, as we're going to see. Those who have once been enlightened, number one. Number two, have tasted the heavenly gift, number three, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, Number four, have tasted the goodness of the word of God. And number five, the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. So what this passage is telling us is one, we don't know. Thank God we don't know when a person has crossed this line of impossibility for repentance. We don't know that. God knows it. We don't know it. And so therefore we can continue to urge people towards repentance until the very last breath they take. That's the good news of this verse. But this verse also tells us that it's possible to experience these five realities, enlightenment, tasting in some form or fashion, the heavenly gift, which could be the gospel, it could be Christ, but but it's just a tasting. And have shared or participated in the Holy Spirit have tasted the goodness of the word of God, the powers of the age to come. You see, that's not, that's not, that's not everything a Christian is. You've been enlightened, great. But the Christian is not merely enlightened. He holds fast with, to the word with an honest and good heart. There's a difference between being enlightened and then holding fast to the message, treasuring the message. Secondly, It's possible to be an unbeliever and still have tasted the heavenly gift. You taste something about forgiveness. You hear the message and you taste something like, this this would be wonderful. This is glorious. Just like the parable of the sower. They all heard it, received it, and eventually turned away from it. But you say, oh, but these, these people shared in the Holy Spirit. Well, like the children of Israel who experienced also the leading of the Holy Spirit through Moses, they all shared in the Holy Spirit as well. In what sense? The Holy Spirit's direction through this man. And so as the the gathered church, the Spirit-filled church is there, and you have these individuals there present with the the visible church, of course they're going to share in the experiences of, of, of what it means to be led by the Holy Spirit, even though themselves they themselves are devoid of that Spirit. They taste the goodness of the Word of God, the powers of the age to come. Did Judas not taste the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come? He was among the crowd of individuals following Jesus who was commissioned to go and by the power of Christ cast demons out in the name of Christ. He tasted the powers of the age to come 
and yet he fell away. Friends, these passages are intended to grip us, to know that it is possible for us to be, be so close and yet so far in that being so close. Go to, go to well, look at verse 7. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. And thank God, verse 9, in the case of the Hebrews, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Go to Hebrews chapter 10 with me. Hebrews chapter 10, look at verse 26. In verses 24 and 25, he talks about how good it is to gather as the church, to stir up one another to love and good works, and all the more as we see the glorious day of Christ drawing near. And what's the reason? Why should we stir up one another? Well, look at verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately, willingly, intentionally, without repentance, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, sounds very similar to 2 Peter, doesn't it? There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. These are things that we need to take to heart. It's possible to be so close and yet be so far. Final text, Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. Many of you are familiar with the parable of the sower. Verse 3, Jesus says, Listen, behold, the sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil, and it produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. As you skip down, he gives the interpretation of this parable. Look at verse 13. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. That's the first heart. Here's the second one, verse 16. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. Perhaps indicative of those in 2 Peter chapter 2. They receive the knowledge of it. 
They received it with joy. Verse 17, and they have no root in themselves. So there's no internal change, you see. Second Peter, it was all surface. The genuine believer knows it in the heart. They have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. If you cross-reference that with Matthew's version of this and Luke's version of this, they say that this word endure is the word believe. Believe. They believe for a while. Hence the reason the Puritans coined the term temporary faith. It's possible to have temporary faith, but not permanent saving faith. Verse He goes on, they endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Now, what's sad is that many, I've heard many Christians tell this parable today, recall this parable, and believe as though all these individuals, except for the first one, were saved. They just say that the second one and the third one are just immature, fruitless Christians. But is that normal New Testament Christianity, to be a fruitless, no-fruit Christian? No. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and self-control and patience and all these things. To, say, to talk about a fruitless Christian is an oxymoron. God produces his fruit in us. Now notice the last one, verse 20. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. Now it's interesting when you study this, this last one. Because as Matthew talks about in his version of it, He says they hold it fast with an honest and good heart. They bear fruit with patience. That's, you put the whole picture together. They hear it. They understand it. They hold fast to it. They bear fruit with patience. They know the Christian life is hard, but they're continuing to look to Christ, to, ha- to heed his word, to hear his word, to heed his word, and they're bearing fruit with perseverance and patience and steadfastness. Friends, let us not be like those who shrink back. Let us not be like those who return to our vomit or to return to the mire. In fact, let us keep a distance from the mire. Let us keep a good distance from anything in this world that could defile us. Instead of testing the limits and seeing how close we can be to to the world, let us be those like our Lord Jesus Christ who sought his one food, and that was just to do the will of his Father. Let us hold fast to the word of life. His word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Let us, in the case of those who are new converts, let us be quick to see to it that they are established and firmly rooted in the truth. And you may not be a pastor, you may not have theological training, but thank God that you live in a world of Amazon and books and Reformation Heritage books and Westminster Bookstore books that, that you, you can buy these books. If you need help, come and see your pastor. We will help you try to find material to, to, to sit with others and, and to learn and to study and to get grounded in the truth and to bear fruit with patience. 
for the glory of Christ and the good of his church. Let's stand.